Welcome to Psychiatry Explored. The guests on this episode have been pre-screened for conflicts of interest and are not presenting material prepared by industry. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. These opinions are meant for education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice. Hello, everybody. Uh, today on Psychiatry Explored, we're going to be covering the topic of psychiatric emergencies and the field of uh, emergency psychiatry. Uh, my name is Devin Borstein-Holler. I am a third-year medical student at Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon, and will be applying into psychiatry this coming year. And I'm Candice. I'm also a third-year, soon-to-be fourth-year medical student at OHSU, and I, like Devin, will be applying into psychiatry this coming summer. And today we have uh, two great psychiatrists joining us. We have Dr. James Covid and Dr. David Doe. Dr. Covid, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi there, absolutely. Thank you so much, Devin and Candace, for having us. We're really excited to be joining y'all on Psychiatry Explored. Uh, my name is James Covid. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist. I work in a psychiatric hospital, uh, doing largely work in the emergency room, seeing people who are in crisis. All right, Dr. Doe. Thank you again for having me as well. Uh, my name is David Doe. I'm also a board-certified psychiatrist. Um, I work in a psychiatric hospital here in Oregon, where I specialize in emergency psychiatry. All right. Well, thank you both for being here, and we'll get into our cases and do some learning. So our first case is Michelle. Michelle is a 28-year-old woman with a history of bipolar disorder who presents to the emergency department via EMS who was called by a public cleaner that was concerned by her erratic behavior, including charging cars on a downtown street. She reports feeling hopeless and overwhelmed, and she states that she's no longer able to cope with the stress in her life and wants to ascend to her rightful spot at the left hand of Yahweh. She's been on lithium in the past, but has not had a prescriber for several years and is currently taking no medications. She endorses regular use of methamphetamine and fentanyl and used both substances late last night. She appears agitated and continues to endorse suicidal ideation with the intention of running into traffic. Her speech is so fast that it often becomes difficult to understand her and she shifts from topic to topic without completing her sentences. She's admitted to the hospital for further evaluation and treatment induction. So first, for patients who are presenting in these kind of like elevated or manic conditions, what role does medication management play in acute stabilization with respect to just sedation versus actual treatment of the underlying psychopathology? Yeah, this is a great question. And I think this case represents something that is really challenging, although not uncommon. We certainly see this in the emergency room, and I suspect in emergency rooms across the country. Uh, this may go without saying, but as we start to kind of think about what to do next, I always like to ground ourselves in what's going on. And so your brain may be already sort of filtering through a differential diagnosis, but you know, this person's agitation, the rapid speech, the history of a bipolar spectrum illness and not taking medication could lead us to think that this person is experiencing mania. We also know that she's using stimulants, uh, which could certainly also be contributing to agitation. The withdrawal of uh, sedatives or opioids can also be pretty agitating, uh, distressing, and dysphoric. So, and we think we're probably seeing a combination of things here. In general, of course, you know, this question is sort of posing like, when do you use medications and sort of what are you treating? Uh, you know, medications have a role perhaps in stabilizing acute mania. If we're thinking about uh, stabilizing this person who's experiencing uh, perhaps agitation as a result of their stimulant use, I also think that there's potentially a role there. The question is, are we sedating people or are we sort of directly treating psychopathology? And I would say both. <laughs> I think that part of treating sort of acute psychiatric illness is providing stabilization or medication that can sort of help slow down this churning of your brain to something that allows you to engage more effectively. Yeah, um, I would definitely agree, you know, back to the state of what are we trying to manage, you know, with this specific situation, while she is in this acute state of mania, you know, our focus is the level of agitation when she's first presenting. Um, so realistically, the medication is to manage that agitation. Um, but still, from a long-term perspective, we would simultaneously be treating her for her acute mania um, as well. Uh, we definitely have to be cautious in this situation, given that she's both on a stimulant as well as an opioid, um, because we kind of have to figure out that balance there. You know, if she's definitely withdrawing, the worriness is a little bit less, but if she could be intoxicated on that as well, 
we do have to be careful with our medications just because of that sedative property. And then if this might be more of an extended release type opioid, um, we have to be careful there as well about her breathing. Interesting. Okay. Thank you guys for talking to us about all those considerations. So then what about when there's a patient who's very activated and they walk into the ED? How do you kind of decide whether to use pharmacologic medications or when it's time to use like physical restraints and even sedation? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, realistically, we follow this algorithm when it comes to people who are exhibiting a level of agitation. Theoretically, we always want to go with considered the least restrictive uh, when someone is agitated. And a lot of times that's more verbal de-escalation. You know, we try to figure out what is the reason of their agitation and see if there's anything that we can do to verbally de-escalate that. So for this situation, if the agitation was more from a stimulant use, you know, ideally we probably want to put them in a calming environment if possible, maybe reduce the, the lighting to help kind of bring down that level of agitation. If we're not able to verbally de-escalate the situation, then the next approach would be medication intervention. We always offer patients medications, explain to them what the purpose of the medication is, and kind of give them the option. Now, this is where the question becomes, to what degree can they be agreeable to that treatment or understand what's going on? And then do we have to escalate that a little bit further? And that's kind of where that next question comes in is, do we consider seclusion? Do we consider injections and things like that? Again, part of the least restrictive would be the in injectable in terms of medications if they decline the PO, but only if we consider their level of agitation and imminent danger to themselves or others. That's like the biggest piece that we have to think about when someone's coming agitated. Um, are they in that type of position is then when we would escalate that further. Definitely, if the medications do not decrease the level of agitation, then we have to consider more restrictive means, and that would be in terms of seclusion. Um, but at that point, this is going to be someone who will need to stay in, our, in the emergency room or will need to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital if we're going to really go down that route because a lot of times this is going to be an involuntary person if we do that. In terms of mechanical restraints, there the utilization of it is very limited. Realistically, any time that is utilized would be if their imminent danger is causing harm on themselves. That's really when that should be utilized. I have to agree. I think there's a real level of extreme, and some of it comes from time and practice and seeing a real spectrum of people i think i've moved more and more towards like david was saying at the beginning sort of using verbal techniques or sort of behavioral techniques to help people find themselves uh in a space that's calmer and that's and they sound kind of glib or kind of easy but i think it's actually really hard i think it's a real skill to be able to talk to somebody especially when somebody's experiencing so much distress and find that level of ability to engage with them I think it's not just less restrictive, although I think, think that is absolutely true. I think it's kinder. I think it's safer. And actually, I just think most immediately it's effective, right? I mean, pharmacologic, you know, sedation or restraints can be helpful, but the fastest medication is still going to take minutes. I mean, you're thinking about, you know, even something that is an injectable medication has to go into somebody's body, be metabolized, be broken down, cross their blood brain barrier. I mean, it's just not as immediate as you can sort of be interpersonally. I think one time, one thing that I really look to is like, not just is this person loud or shouting or using, you know, vulgar words, but truly is this situation unsafe, you know, or is like somebody about to be hurt. I don't think that things, you know, I don't think that people who work in healthcare need to get hurt or should put themselves at risk of getting hurt. Uh, and I do think at the same time, we have to recognize that the environment that we're in is bright and loud and echoey and people are asking you a lot of questions and you imagine sort of having a really, if you can try and put yourself in that headspace, whatever that looks like, having a really bad day or being really upset or, you know, being intoxicated and having that kind of tossed at you is sort of inherently uh, is, is a really hard space to be in. And so how about for practitioners who are outside of like psychiatric EDs or even just a normal emergency department where they might not have these resources at hand, um, either in their community or in, or in the space where they practice. For instance, I'm thinking of like a patient I had at a rural uh, family medicine rotation. They came in for a 20 minute follow-up visit and uh, we went in expecting a normal like wellness check. 
And the person was, you know, floridly psychotic, um, very manic, and really reminded me of a lot of the patients I worked with in the PEZ. And my first thought was, this is a person who should be in a psychiatric ED. We don't have one of those. And they're actually managed um, on an outpatient weekly phone call basis. So what are some tips for um, primary care people or individuals who are outside of the like psychiatric emergency services setting? Yeah, I mean, I love that problem solving. And I think ultimately you're using the resources you have, right? And if that looks like, you know, leveraging yourself to check in on this person periodically, by all means, uh, I I do think that, you know, we have an advantage in the sort of primary referral center with a lot of practitioners and nurses with psychiatric expertise and a giant team of security officers around us, right? Like it, it really changes, I think, a lot of the dynamics. I think in these situations, uh, I really try and find some point of mutual agreement with the person I'm working with, right? Like what are the thing, what are things that we can both latch on to that they're looking for? Whether it's a symptom like, hey, I really haven't been able to sleep and that's bothering me, or hey, my thoughts feel like they're racing and like I need that under control. Or sometimes you can get buy-in from people when they're saying things like, I just feel really out of control or I feel unsettled or I feel like I want to be sort of, I want things to be easier. So whether you're grounding onto a symptom or to maybe just a, an adjective, uh, sometimes that's a way to find some agreement. And then you're like, okay, well, cool. Like, I think we're both trying to help you feel like things are easier. I've got an idea about some medication that could be helpful to help you out in this situation. Yeah, I definitely agree with James on that. Um, I would throw in, you know, what is the comfort level of that provider outside of the psych setting? You know, that that person is taking on a big ask if they're trying to manage someone who is in a acute psychiatric crisis. So one thing, depending on what state um, the practitioner is in, there might be an access line that they could also reach out to. They can, they can do a consultation with a psychiatrist. So, for example, here in Oregon, we have this program called OPAL, um, O-P-A-L, where a primary care provider can reach out to get assistance. Um, but it really comes down to that comfort level when managing them if they lack those resources. But it could be additional assistance. All right. Thanks for all those insights. I think I think we did good by Michelle. Yes. Now let's see how we can do with Tommy. So Tommy is a 45-year-old man who presents to the emergency department after assaulting his neighbor who is trying to stop him from digging up his garden. He appears angry and agitated and he reports that he was provoked by the neighbor who had been planning cameras in his garden to track Tommy's movements. He also admits to hearing voices that warn him of this plot and that an organized group of people are out to get him. He fears that he may have to prepare to defend himself against this organization and feels that this recent interaction only proves his concerns. He appears disheveled and is wearing socks over his sandals and shorts with a Hawaiian shirt despite it being the middle of winter. He reports a history of treatment with risperidone, which was stopped due to undesirable side effects, and aripiprazole, but says that he stopped this medication because he was no longer sick. So in patients where there's concern about a medical health condition like hypothermia or ex exposure such as in the patient above, how is care coordinated between medical facilities um, and psychiatric specialty service locations? Yeah, so in regards to Tommy, as you pointed out, you know, he is in a psychotic um, episode right now. You know, what's the ideology of it is still unknown, um, but he's putting himself in the setting where there could be medical issues that arrive. You know, depending on how Tommy is found, um, that can kind of determine how, what setting is he most appropriate for. So for example, where we work, um, if Tommy was found out in at his home, um, a lot of times um, emergency services like the ambulance will come and approach the patient and they will kind of make their quick medical decision on this individual to determine are there things that would require um, emergency medical emergency level of care. Um, if not, then they're transported to our um, emergency room. From there, you know, we do our own assessment to determine, you know, what degree of medical issues there are, you know, by doing just basic history and physical exam and getting vitals to really see if anything's going on. If there's something that comes up emergent during our evaluation, uh, we have a pretty good liaison with our local emergency medical emergency room where we would transfer that individual over there 
if it's nothing is emergent, but there is still potential of medical issues, then we would start our basic workup um, where we'd order labs on them, depending on what type of symptomology that person is having. Yeah, I think health systems manage this in a variety of different ways. There are certainly emergency rooms with integrated psychiatric emergency rooms inside of them, or sometimes next door to them, or in a different building than them. Depending on the size of the city or the health system you're in, it may all just be one all-purpose emergency room. In the same way that uh, emergency rooms break out other services depending on the area, and like labor and deliver delivery could labor and delivery could be in the same area, it could be in a separate area. I think in this situation, David's absolutely right. I think it could be warranted, for instance, to get some serologies and determine this person's nutritional state and get a sense of sort of where he's doing. I think the intersection between medical illness and psychiatric illness is particularly sharp in people uh, who are in this situation. Yeah. And so if you have a patient who is deemed appropriate for more of a direct medical oversight situation, are those providers then also making those initial treatment decisions for the psychiatric condition as well? Are they coordinating with you to help make those diagnostic calls and prescriptions, or are they kind of handling everything up front and then you will theoretically take over the patient once they transfer it to the psych-specific facility? I think it really varies depending on the system that you're in. You know, many emergency physicians are incredible and have this huge breadth of knowledge and I think are the first line for psychiatric emergencies in most communities most of the time. In some places, uh, you can sort of have ready access to an emergency psychiatrist, in which case the psychiatrist is sort of reciprocally making determination about the level of psychiatric care and sort of initiating a medical workup. That makes sense. And so as uh, Dr. Doe's noticing, um, our good friend Tommy here seems to be experiencing um, an event of psychosis. Um, I'm curious about what kind of cultural factors influence the presentation and management of psychiatric emergencies and uh, psychosis specifically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's hard for us to really talk about Tommy here, um, given that we don't know much about his cultural context. But culture does play a role when we're assessing people who are experiencing level of psychosis. And it's more by understanding that individual's culture and how do we talk about those things with the patient as well as with the family. So there are like culture bound conditions where they may come off as a psychotic symptom um, to people when in reality it's bound to their culture. So it's being able to have that conversation. And other things we also have to consider is the level of, um, the culture as well when it comes to mental health. Um, some cultures, you know, are still trying to um, fathom the notion of mental health in their family members. Um, so having that type of conversation, it can be very delicate um, because, you know, we do want to be able to help everyone um, that's in this acute state. So when we are working with people where culture is a prominent thing to be looking at, um, both patients and family members are people that we want to engage with as opposed to the individual patient alone. I think that like David's saying, you know, when we even try and define psychosis or like a delusional idea, right? A delusion is a fixed false belief that's outside of cultural norms. And that's hard to know as a person. I think historically psychiatry has tried to dictate what those cultural norms are. And we run into a, perhaps a little bit of paternalism or sort of hegemonic thinking by assuming that we could know not only what a dominant norm is, but that what any given person's thinking or to pretend that we have, I think, that awareness. So one aspect of cultural humility is acknowledging that we don't know things. I would say, you know, somewhat jokingly that there are members of my family who wear socks and sandals and shorts in the middle of winter. Uh, and I think that there's an element of uh, things that you know, we that may exist outside of ourselves um, or outside of our comfort level, both physical comfort and sort of mental comfort. And uh, the best thing that we can do is talk to other people. In this case, you know, like David's saying, talking to this person's family might help us sort of illuminate what is and is uh, not part of uh, a cultural standard. Yeah. My younger brother was one of those kids who wore shorts and a t-shirt when it was 15 degrees outside. So I know what you mean. Yeah, I've always been interested in the way that like uh, social and like historical forces have influenced the way that these conditions kind of manifest like persecutory or like hyper religious sentiments 
like how the environment that the person has grown up in influences how those pop up. Like we couldn't have always been worried about people in black suits with black glasses hunting after us uh, before, you know, suits and glasses existed. Um, so it's an interesting question I, I intend to spend more time digging into. Absolutely. I mean, when we talk about ideas of reference, right, we talk about people who are getting special messages from the TV or from the radio. And I've always wondered what happened before there were TV and radio, but people were still experiencing psychosis. And I like the idea that people were getting special messages from the telegram. Yeah. Wow. Slippers and shorts in winter. Sounds like your guys' family members were built different. Yeah. Um, okay. The other question I have is, is there any relationship between long-term outcomes in patients with primary psych psychotic disorders with respect to total time spent in uncompensated psychosis? Yeah, I think that. Go ahead, David. Uh, no, uh, I want to say is like I I do think at least from my understanding is that it does ch change a person's prognosis somewhat. You know, if they spend more time in a psychotic state, you know, the prognosis there are a lot of variables that are in place. Um, that will help us understand the prognosis of an individual who struggles with psychosis. Um, but for this question specifically, yes, the longer that person stays in a psychotic state um, without any type of treatment, the prognosis does uh, decrease in terms of being able to improve uh, long term. And the reason behind that is that there are other symptoms that will become associated as one struggles with active symptoms and then into neg to negative symptoms as well. And that's where prognosis actually becomes worse when we see more of those negative symptoms. Yeah, I think it's tempting to have a, a correlate to, you could imagine diabetes, right? Where the longer you stay in sort of an elevated glycemic state, the more you're binding these groups to your hemoglobin, you can measure this with your A1C and say, ah, I see like in the last three months, we have this rolling average perhaps of what your glucoses were. And it's not perhaps quite like that, right? It's not like, I think a quite a one-to-one -one correlate with how much dopamine you do or do not have in your system and the long-term sort of outcomes. Although I do think with more time and more population level health studies, we are getting a better sense I think you could imagine this perhaps at a most immediate level, right? If you're experiencing psychosis and this person, for instance, it sounds like is having a really tough, I would imagine he could be having a tough time maintaining in the place where he's living, right? He's so concerned about the neighbors who are around him that he's leaving his apartment. His apartment might be disheveled. He might have left the music playing really loud that to avoid people or to you know keep people out but now he's about to get kicked out and not being stably housed is going to make it much more challenging for him and so pretty quickly there's sort of other social factors that come into play that are going to make it really challenging for him to recover so tommy was saying that he was on risperidone for a while and uh, had to stop using that medication due to negative uh, side effects from that medication as a side tangent, can we briefly cover the management of psychiatric medication-induced emergencies, things like serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, malignant catatonia, things like that? I know it's a very broad question. Absolutely. There's a few medications in, there's a few psychiatric medications that have side effects or emergencies. One thing that sort of is classically differentiated is the serotonin syndrome and neuroleptic malignant syndrome or NMS. Serotonin syndrome, as you'd imagine, is caused by medications that are serotonergic. Um, and while those could be things like antidepressants, SSRIs, SNRIs, especially in combination, like when you're stacking multiple agents, there's a variety of other medications that are serotonergic. I think of when I think of somebody that's classically experiencing serotonin syndrome, I tend to think of hyperreflexia, myoclonus, uh, and perhaps like ocular clonus. There's not usually a lot of lab findings that are associated with serotonin syndrome. Uh, and often it's a pretty acute change. So somebody had the, you know, classically you'll ask somebody and they'll say, oh yes, I just made this change to my medication yesterday. I increased my sertraline. I was supposed to go from 50 to 250, right? And you're like, oh, well, okay, okay. Um, so usually it starts pretty quickly. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome, NMS, can look similar in that there's also hyperreflexia. And so I think sometimes these two things, that's in my mind where they often overlap. NMS is most usually caused by dopamine antagonist, 
like antipsychotic medications, dopamine blockers like the risperidone that Tommy's taking. Uh, in addition to this hyperreflexia, the other pathognomon or classic finding that you would have perhaps would be this sort of intense rigidity or lead pipe rigidity if you're taking a test is what they'll say. Um, and as a result or in combination with that super, that, hyper, that rigidity is more likely to see things like uh, a little bit of AKI, like increased um, creatinine uh, kinase, perhaps uh, which could cause some AKI, perhaps some leukocytosis. Um, and neuroleptic malignant syndrome tends to be a little bit more gradual uh, and might come on, for instance, like a week or two after starting a medication changes and also tends to resolve a little bit more gradually. Yeah, I mean, I agree with James on the descriptions of those psychiatric emergencies. And one thing that James had alluded to, you know, we kind of, especially with serotonin syndrome, we think of the serotonergic medications like the SSRIs and SNRIs. Um, but, you know, for people outside of psychiatry, we also prescribe a lot of other medications that are also serotonergic or has a potential of causing um, our SSRIs to increase in levels of their serotonin. Um, so common medications that can be associated are, are migraine medications like tryptans, as well as anti-emetic medications um, such as um, odansetron and metoclopramide. So when someone comes in with these types of symptoms, it's really important to also do a good uh, medication reconciliation. That way you can kind of figure out what is the agents or agents that might have been contributing uh, to their uh, to this symptomology. Um, most importantly, it's the way that we treat it is uh, discontinuing the medications that may be causing these symptoms, as well as then just providing supportive care. Um, all the medications that are out there that you know y'all learn about in medical school or like these anecdotes are really just to treat the symptoms. It's not really kind of flushing them out as what we think of as an antidote. Yeah, that's a good point to like think about other medications be besides like SSRIs um, causing serotonin syndrome because I we did have a patient that had serotonin syndrome with tramadol and I like was like what I didn't realize it just wasn't an association in my mind that that could happen. Off the vein of you like talking about what we learn in medical school, how like actually common are these emergencies like NMS, serotonin syndrome, and malignant catatonia? At least with serotonin syndrome and NMS, um, they're actually not that common. Like from my experience alone, you know, I've been practicing now roughly about 10 years if you include residency. Um, I've only seen serotonin syndrome once and I've seen NMS twice. Um, and I've worked in really county settings where we have pretty sick individuals um, who aren't taking care of themselves where their risk of these conditions do increase. Um, so they're not very likely. In terms of like malignant catatonia, um, you know, we do learn a lot about it. But again, I think in terms of how common it is, it's not very common as well, at least from my own experience. I think sometimes too, it's possible to experience serotonin syndrome in perhaps milder ways. I think the most, you know, extreme version would be this person who's experiencing intense hyperreflexia myoclonus in the ways that we tend to see whenever things uh, show up in like medical textbooks or videos and at the same time multiple like they were saying multiple smaller doses of serotonergic medications can add up to something that feels like this uh, sort of discomfort or agitation i think there's other medications too you know that can be toxic and overdose we could think about lithium toxicity uh there is a, another medication that's um uh, can be prone to uh, a psychiatric emergency or medication-induced emergency, I should say. Wonderful. Well, Tommy's in great hands. Hopefully, we'll get him back on some of the aripiprazole. We know what to look out for for these side effects, and I'm optimistic about what we were able to do for him. All right, so our next case is going to be Gwen. Gwen is a 19-year-old woman who is presenting as a transfer patient from the local emergency department after a suicide attempt by overdose uh, with various over-the-counter medications and her Wellbutrin and Gabapentin. She reports feeling depressed and hopeless, and she states that she has been struggling with these feelings for some time. She has cuts on her arms and reports that she's been engaging in self-harm for several months. She was in a motor vehicle accident two years ago that left her with chronic neck and shoulder pain, which she rates as a constant 4 out of 10. She has an established outpatient psychiatrist who recently increased her Wellbutrin dose due to worsening depressive symptoms. She endorses continued SI, but is no longer sure if overdosing is how she would want to kill herself and has no new plan. 
So what are some key signs when you have a patient come in that you're looking for when you're evaluating a patient's suicide risk? Yeah, um, that's a great question, um, especially in regards to going here. Now, when we are assessing someone's suicide risk, we look at these things that are called risk factors. And risk factors are just common factors that are associated with people who have engaged in suicidal um, behavior. So those are things like gender, age, race, and other um, factors that are out there. Um, when we look at those risk factors, we look at what's called modifiable versus non-modifiable as well. And those are things that can be changed versus things that cannot be changed about that individual in terms of characteristics. But ultimately with these risk factors, we look at how does it compare to the general population and for us to kind of determine what's that person's baseline um, when it turns to their suicide risk. Beyond those risk factors, um, we'll take a look at any type of imminent behavior that can kind of help us understand what is that potential risk coming from their baseline. And, you know, you may hear terminology like an acute elevation um, from that individual's baseline. And I, I always compare it to things that you may have learned or you may have come across before you went to medical school. So like things you hear about is like, oh, this person wrote a letter um, saying goodbye or giving away belongings. Um, those types of behavioral kind of tell you that there is this potential um, imminent risk that's going to occur from that baseline. So in this tape, in this case with Gwen here, you know, things that we would look at to determine her risk would be the fact that she had just attempted suicide, even though she's no longer having a suicide plan and a questionable intent at this moment, but she just overdosed on various medications. Her age also plays a role with her being 19. Um, when we look at age, those that are higher risk are younger age, as well as those above the age of 45. Her self-harm behavior for the last several months would also play a as a risk factor for us to kind of determine that risk that's there, as well as her struggling with pain. Sometimes people forget about medical issues that contribute to um, their suicidal behavior. A lot of times medical issues that create a loss of functioning in someone's life or making life feel much harder can play a risk factor as well. Yeah, evaluating acute suicidal risk is challenging. It's a, it's a real skill. And I think there's a lot of factors that go into this. You can imagine at a global level, a scale, right? You know, sort of like the classic scales of justice where you're trying to weigh things and some things are making your risk higher, like David was saying, like certain demographic factors, things you can't change, and then situational things and also things that you are thinking or doing. And then some things make things suicide less likely, right? Protective factors that you have in your life. And as a psychiatrist, your job is to sort of take in all these factors along with, like we were saying earlier, the social, cultural, contextual environment that this person exists in, and knowing that sort of people exist a lot of the time with both suicidal thoughts or thoughts about not wanting to be alive. And that's sort of fundamentally different than having perhaps a plan or intent or taking action or taking steps towards ending your life. And then, so I think there's kind of this, like, at least before medical school, I had this uh, narrative in my mind that I heard from people where it's like, if you listen to people who have attempted uh, suicide by like jumping off bridges, usually the immediate feeling they have right after they jump is an immediate feeling of regret. And so in my mind, before medical school, I was thinking, oh, so that's like almost a protective factor. Like you do it, you realize the regret, you don't want to do it anymore. But I know that history of recent suicide attempt, at least one of the clicking boxes in the chart is listed as an acute risk. So is a recent suicide attempt protective versus how much does that actually increase the risk of an immediate reattempt? And then also, just as a brief little touch, does the plan that the person's presenting with uh, influence that risk as well? Um, or do plans kind of like change? And even if it sounds like it's a less lethal plan, are you treating them as the same severity? Yeah, I mean, you point out a great uh, misconception when it comes to prior suicide attempts. You know, for us, suicide attempts is actually considered one of the biggest risk factor for an individual. Those who have attempted suicide in the past are five to six more times likely to do it again um, compared to the general population. And actually uh, around 50% of those who do die by suicide did have at least one prior suicide attempt in the past. So it, it is something very big that we do worry about. In regards to your question about, you know, what is their plan and does that play a role as well? 
you know, we have this idea of the potential lethality of their suicide attempt, but that doesn't change what the person is going through at that time. Even though there may be a low lethality on what they're doing, there's still a potential there of someone dying from that suicide attempt, you know, as long as the things align most appropriately for that to occur. So when we're assessing lethality in that regard to like what they're doing, that might tell us in terms of like a person's risk. But when you're coming across a person who has a plan, you know, we take any type of plan very serious. And that's where we kind of look at all the other factors to determine that imminent sense of danger for them. I think, too, we have to acknowledge that, you know, it's some of these things exist in like a really complex way. So, you know, doing something to end your life is really intense. Like this is a very pivotal, challenging and a like psychically challenging thing to enact in a person's life. And what comes from that varies a lot, just like other really big, heavy, scary, frightening, traumatic things in our lives. It, I find that it may be less about the actual facts of the situation and more about the meaning that we make from this. I could imagine a situation where a person perhaps for example, took medication in a way that was lethal or they were trying to end their life. And like you're saying, Devin, that person could look back on the situation and say, wow, you know, I was in crisis and I felt overwhelmed and I didn't know what to do. And I'm, I need to really figure this out. Like I scared myself or a person could look back and think, wow, I didn't take enough. And I'm still wishing that actually I was not alive. And the same event has different implications. And that's why I think while these things are sort of weighing as factors, it's not quite a simple algorithm where it's plus one for this and minus two for that, so much as thinking about what impact or meaning these things actually have in people's lives. Yeah. So on my child adolescent psychiatry rotation, I had a couple parents who were hesitant to start an SSRI for their kiddo because they were concerned about an increase in suicidality. Um, and so what role do antidepressants such as Wellbutrin, which our patient is taking, and SSRIs play in either increasing or decreasing acute suicidality? I think that this concern is real. And a lot of this concern comes from the FDA black box warning that's on all antidepressants, which says that young people, and in this situation, we're defining young people as less than 25, globally have an increased risk of dying by suicide uh, in association with things like depression, antidepressant medications. This is These are challenging data, and I think that they're really best looked at in context, right? We know that people, young people, like David was saying earlier, are a population that's especially vulnerable for dying by suicide. And we know that medication can be useful, but medication is not perhaps a panacea. It's not like this pill will sort of resolve all of the thoughts that they were having or feelings that they were experiencing. And so I think that antidepressants absolutely do have a role in treating depression. We also know that there's a period of time when you're experiencing depression, when you feel low, like the symptoms, you know, if we look at the criteria for depression, it's things like anhedonia, it's not getting up, it's not doing the things that you're enjoying. And in the time after you start perhaps taking medication or engaging in treatment across the board, I might argue, that you start to feel like you suddenly, not suddenly, gradually actually have more energy and more capacity to engage in things. And if you're still having pretty intense thoughts about not wanting to be alive and having more energy, that's a particularly vulnerable time I'm not sure that the answer is to not use antidepressant medications, but rather to think about the the risk that this person exists in in this period, especially the acute time after they've started taking medication and thinking about how you could increase support for that person, whether it's clinical support, social support, family support. Yeah, I agree with James on that. You know, anecdotally, we actually came across this type of situation when I was in residency. Um, I had an adolescent came in who was started on an antidepressant and the family was concerned because that individual was having suicidal thoughts um, and so it's all about trying to assess the situation and really look at 
all the things that are contributing to this individual and how much could be associated from the medication versus it could be the fact that that individual's depression has gotten worse, which has resulted into those suicidal thoughts. Um, so it's really looking at the big picture um, when it comes to a person who's depressed. But as James has said, you know, medications are not the only thing that we utilize when a person is suicidal, especially in the younger population. Therapeutic intervention and a strong social support are primary in terms of helping improve these people. Um, for the most part, most people who are depressed and suicidal in this age population is usually driven, at least in my opinion, by um, social issues. Um, and so being able to kind of capture those things and kind of recognize how much they're contributing can be much helpful in treating that person. Yeah. And when we were discussing things that you kind of like have on that risk calculation, the modifiable versus non-modifiable risk factors, um, loss of function, chronic pain, uh, medical illnesses were one of those factors. I'm curious. So Gwen also had the chronic pain in the shoulder from the car accident. When you have patients who are experiencing those um, symptoms, are those something that you're managing as well or kind of coordinating with a PCP? Or what is the psychiatrist's role in helping kind of like reduce those modifiable risk factors that might not be purely psychiatric? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. And I think kind of the theme of tonight is it really depends on the um, setting that that individual is working with in terms of the patient. You know, there are some psychiatric patients who fully just um, rely on their psychiatrist to be that individual that treats everything for them. Um, a lot of times when a patient comes in with mental illness, they're sharing a lot of personal things with that person. And so they've developed that trust and that goes beyond just the mental health. And there are some psychiatrists who do play the role as that primary care provider as well. You know, there are other settings where a patient would come in and already have a primary care provider. So we would want to work in tandem with them to treat both sides. You know, we'll focus more on the depression and then turn it over to our colleagues in terms of it's the physical pain or the medical issues. It all goes back to what I had said earlier when we were talking about those that were not that don't have a psychiatric emergency room. It's all about the comfort level again. You know, what's within our scope of practice on how we're going to manage this person. So, like for example, a medical illness that may be outside our scope of managing would be someone who has MS. Um, and MS is kind of considered one of those risk factors in terms of medical illness that increases someone's suicide risk. You know, we would definitely want to try to involve somebody in neurology um, to be able to manage that as opposed to us taking that type of condition on. Yeah, just like, you know, we know that emergency room physicians are sort of the front line to a lot of psychiatric crisis. In this case, you know, in a dedicated psychiatric emergency room, I think the psychiatrist is also the front line to a lot of medical conditions. And our job is not necessarily to know how to treat everything, but to know sort of what we can do and what we need extra help with. Like David was saying, lung cancer is another example of an illness that's associated with increased risk of suicide. And I think the job of a psychiatrist is not necessarily to know the ins and outs of oncologic treatment, but to recognize that this is happening. I also think that this is a great role for, you know, what we might call broadly integrated care, integrated medicine, which sometimes, or I mean, recently has looked like psychiatry or mental health sort of embedding itself into uh, the rest of physical medicine. And sometimes what we call reverse integrated care is when physical medicine integrates itself into psychiatry or to mental health, because we know that people with mental illness, especially people with chronic or sometimes we call it, say, severe persistent mental illness, die at much younger ages than their peers. And it's not necessarily from psychiatric illness or from suicide. It's from things like heart disease. All right. So we're going to move on to our last case. And we have Stacy, who is a 28-year-old G1P1 female who presents to the emergency department accompanied by her husband. She reports experiencing increasingly severe symptoms of anxiety, irritability, and insomnia for the past two weeks since the birth of her first child. Her husband reports that he has noticed her becoming progressively more paranoid and delusional with beliefs that someone is trying to harm their newborn baby. Over the past 48 hours, her symptoms have escalated, and she has begun to hear voices telling her to harm herself and her baby. 
This has prompted her husband to bring her into the emergency department for evaluation. She denies any history of similar episodes or psychiatric hospitalizations. She has no personal or family history of bipolar disorder, psychosis, or any other psychiatric conditions. She denies any recent substance use, including alcohol, illicit drugs, or prescription medications that are not prescribed to her. She has been exclusively breastfeeding her baby since birth. During the pregnancy, Stacy experienced mild symptoms of depression and anxiety, but did not seek any treatment. Her prenatal course was otherwise uncomplicated, and she delivered a healthy baby at 39 weeks gestation via spontaneous vaginal delivery. She does not wish to be hospitalized for concerns about feeding and protecting her child. And so psychiatric emergencies are really kind of like a gray area. It's one of the practices where I've most often seen the a conflict emerge about the four pillars of medical ethics. Um, that's particularly concerning patient autonomy and beneficence. And so what key components of managing a psychiatric emergency are you guys looking at when the patient disagrees with your prescribed course of action? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd be interested to hear a little bit more what you mean about gray area because I do think that that's a really challenging part of medicine. Uh, but I also think that there's some key ethical principles like you're talking about that we do lean on quite a bit as we think about making some of these decisions. You know, in this case, we might hypothesize that Stacy is experiencing postpartum psychosis based on the, the qualities that um, are in this case. And I think one of the most immediate decisions is around, you know, whether we might seek to uh, provide involuntary treatment. It sounds like she is not wanting to stay in the hospital. And at this point, we could argue or we might argue with a little bit more detail that she might need that, that our recommendation would be for her to stay in the hospital. Um, you know, I think like we were going to say earlier, I would I would hope that the hospital could provide, for instance, ways for her to pump or to feed her child. That's like a pretty essential part of care. And I think, uh, you know, I think that's a principle of both autonomy and beneficence and probably non-maleficence. Also, frankly, justice. Um, in terms of managing this emergency, I think we're kind of operating in two lenses, right? When we think about the most imminent risk of the situation, I think we have to talk about how are we stabilizing somebody in the next matter of hours? And I sometimes liken this to if somebody was experiencing another type of a medical emergency, like they had come in after a motor vehicle accident and were, we were worried that they had sort of internal bleeding and you know that they that they were losing blood. And in that situation, we are worried about their long-term health, but we're actually really worried about their immediate health, like what's gonna happen in the next matter of hours. And we can think sort of diagnostically, right? Like just like we would put on our medical hats and say, even though we don't know that there's bleeding, we're seeing things like sort of diffuse ecchymoses on, you know, on the left side, and we think that might be consistent with the splenic lack. And so we could put on our hats here too and say that people who are experiencing psychiatric emergencies like postpartum psychosis are at extremely high risk of both harm to themselves and potentially to their infant. And so that might, you know, we could ground ourselves in some fact, medical facts about the situation and some of the risk. We'd have to know a lot more to opine about this person specifically and the, the situation that they find themselves in. Um, but I think sometimes it's easy to get lost in, well, what's gonna happen five days from now? And sort of when I think about psychiatric emergency, I'm thinking like, how do we need to proceed like tonight, for instance? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually very glad that y'all brought this case up. Um, I, you know, working in psychiatric emergencies, a lot of times we focus on the suicidal and homicidal or violent patient, and we forget about other psychiatric emergencies. So, for example, someone with postpartum psychosis is considered a psychiatric emergency when they're having this type of experience. Um, I agree with James, you know, when it comes to the ethical value of people who present to our emergency room and they do not agree with our recommended treatment, it goes back to that sense of that imminent danger where the focus is on in this moment, what is the potential imminent danger that can occur for the person that we're working with, as well as the people in the community. So in this type of case, it's going to be more on the baby. Um, and that's what our focus will be on. And if we feel like there is that imminent danger, I think we actually meet all the principles um, that have been brought up because we're doing what we feel might be in the best interest in order to protect both parties in this type of situation.
Got it. Well, I'm glad this is not a great area for Dr. COVID and Dr. Dill. That makes me feel really good and that I'm in safe hands. But I guess I mean, it's kind of like a great area. Sometimes it doesn't seem like there's one straightforward answer, especially when thinking about patients um, in psychiatric emergencies who maybe don't have capacity um, and you kind of have to figure that out and make a call. Um, also, just kind of juggling medical versus psychiatric problems. Um, but thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, I mean, I will agree that there is still the sense of a gray area in that what we interpret as imminent danger may not be the same thing that's interpreted by another provider. It's all about having the right amount of information for you to make that decision. And it's not a decision that we make easily. Um, we really look at everything. I'll admit that there are times where I will grapple with my decision, you know, was this appropriate or is it appropriate to put a person on some type of involuntary hold to treat this person because their symptoms have the risk of that imminent danger but you know we can't honestly predict imminent danger you know if we could that'd be amazing but all we have are just the tools in terms of just trying to make that decision in that moment but we don't know what's going to really happen in the future. Totally. And I didn't mean to call you out, Candace. I guess I meant more that <laughs> um, the, I think these things can feel really challenging because they are really challenging. And like David is saying, I think one of the tricky parts is wishing that we had the ability to predict the future or sort of know what would happen or what the right, quote unquote, right thing to do is. And I think, I know we keep going back to this, but I think a lot of this is grounded in culture too different places, uh, you know, locally, nationally, globally, have sort of taken different stance on this. We could imagine a spectrum from being the most, you know, societally uh, conservative or controlling, right, where we sort of dictate what people with who are sick should do or need to do. And then at the other end saying, like, everyone kind of gets to make their total, their own decision, total autonomy. And we've landed somewhere in the middle where we think that people who are experiencing mental illness and who are dangerous to themselves should be required to have treatment. And that's a standard that's unique. You know, that's that's not held everywhere. And even within that, there's nuance, right? Like, well, what does it mean to be imminently at risk? And in some states, you know, we've defined it where the bar is pretty high so that you have to be really, really, really sick to have to be in the hospital. And in some places that bar is pretty low. You actually don't need to be that sick and you can be mandated to treatment. And that is as much, uh, you know, as much as we like to think that's an individual doctor sort of deciding what to do, that's kind of a, a societal decision that we've made as a community to put our, our kind of line in the sand and think about how we want to, to manage ourselves collectively. Yeah, I mean, James made a very good point about that from a cultural societal standard. You know, we struggle with this idea of do we do a paternalistic type treatment on these individuals who come in and they may pose as an imminent danger. And even between us as physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs who work in mental health, you know, we're also not really making that decision. We may make that initial decision to keep them in the facility to start treatment, but it follows a legal algorithm, which even then has its own uh, variability. Um, like, for example, here in Oregon, one judge may all see it one way versus a different judge. Um, and so that does make it tough as well. So there's no straight answer. So yeah, I mean, I agree with James in terms of when we were talking about you know, not having a gray area, I think it means more in regards to like looking at these ethical principles. But in terms of making that final decision and all the variables that are there, um, I think that's where that gray area comes in is, you know, do we meet that level that's required to force that individual to receive treatment? Thanks for helping us row out of some of the brackish waters and into the, the fresh water. Back to our, our wonderful case. I, I really enjoyed that, uh, that whole conversation. That was great. Um, so Stacy's here. She's going to be hospitalized, assuming we're rolling with that postpartum psychosis kind of idea. Um, I know that that is a specific condition where I hear about ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, as an intervention. Um, and I'm curious about how you guys have seen interventional psychiatric interventions, um, which I realize is like a sandwich of words, uh, popping up into emergency psychiatry care and like the availability of them, like how patients get access to them in uh, timely manners, given that a lot of these are like emergency situations. 
Um, yeah, um, that's a that's a great question. You know, with a lot of these newer interventions, where does it role plays? You know, in an emergency type situation, those are things that we would consider as part of the treatment algorithm. But again, as James had pointed out um, during this talk, was that our main focus is in the moment of how do we manage whatever is the symptoms at that time, and then provide that transition of care. So ECT is a great source of treatment for people who are pregnant, um, especially, you know, when we run to the risk of medication interventions, and that can kind of consider one of the gold standard treatments for people, especially if they're severely depressed who are pregnant, is to use ECT. Um, there are other interventions that are out there that will help manage, but a lot of times it's either done through an outpatient setting. Um, so we've kind of helped reduce that emergent risk um, if we think that they are still someone who is in imminent danger, um, then we would consider hospitalization where they might be able to bridge those individuals to those interventions like ACT or sometimes um, other types of treatment. So like, for example, there's a newer medication that's out on the market that's supposed to help manage um, depression, uh, which is called, I'm probably going to butcher this, um, and which is an infusion of a medication. Um, to help those struggling with depression. I may or may not have presented about Brixandalone to a doctor during my emergency psychiatry rotation. Wow, I got some expertise here. I love it. Um, I would just put in a plug, you know, electroconvulsive therapy is this idea and there's a lot of, I think, baggage that still persists, including in the field of mental health. And if you've, um, and yet it is one of our most effective treatments it have it works the fastest it's incredibly effective the rates of improvement are impressive and incredible and there are many situations that if i had a loved one who was in this very specific very challenging unfortunate situation that's the treatment i would want for them electroconvulsive therapy if you've only seen it in a movie or in a dated sort of looking grainy video from medical school i would just offer that it is a contemporary treatment that we provide today that's effective and happens in places that look like operating rooms using all of the same types of, you know, both interventions and also levels of ethics that um, exist elsewhere. So that's my plug for electroconvulsive therapy. Um, interventional psychiatry is, I think, like David was saying, a field that's growing right now. You know, we could think about another uh, particularly recent thing, recent in, this, in the scheme of medicine, like S-ketamine, and the role of treatment of acute suicidality right now what you know as of when we're recording this as ketamine is indicated solely for major depressive disorder that's treatment resistant meaning you've tried other medications first and for people who are experiencing acute suicidality and i think we're going to see a lot of changes um in sort of our our use of things that are uh, either medications like esketamine or psilocybin uh, and interventional meaning things like electroconvulsive therapy or transcranial magnetic simulation as we just learn more about them. And if viewers want to learn more about ECT, we our last month's podcast was on ECT. So that's my plug for that. Nice plug. <laughs> all right. Well, that kind of wraps up our questions for the cases. So thank you all for helping us out with our four different patients. Um, we kind of now have some general questions um, about emergency psychiatry. And I'm going to start off with my first question, which is we've kind of talked about the PEZ or psychiatric emergency services um, for people that don't know. And personally, I don't know much about the PEZ. Um, so I'd love to hear more about what it is, how it differs from normal other emergency rooms. Also, like, are they very common across the nation? And then how are patients like referred there? How do they end up in the PEZ? Yeah, uh, so for our PEZ is treated as if it is an emergency room. Um, anybody can walk into um, our facility and be evaluated for a psychiatric emergency room or sorry, psychiatric emergency. Um, they can also present, um, you know, what they call 911 and ambulance teams that they are in a psychiatric emergency. Um, they'll bring us in. Oh, bring them in, sorry. Um, how it compares to like other places, I mean, I would say that, you know, APES is a dedicated psychiatric emergency room where our main focus is treating those psychiatric emergencies. Now, other medical emergency rooms kind of has 
um, James pointed out earlier is that there might be like an extension in that air in that a medical emergency room where they may have like a pod where only psychiatric emergency patients are um, being evaluated and that's kind of where they're situated in the ER. You know, I would say like kind of the differences is that when our, our PEZ is just mainly staffed with psychiatrists, nurse practitioners in mental health, physician assistants, social workers, it's more robust that's focused on a person's psychiatric crisis as opposed to like maybe a medical emergency room where their role is to kind of treat everything. So their services may be a little bit more limited on what they're able to do or what they have um, there. Um, in terms of like how how or how many PEZs there are across the nation, you know, is it common or is it not? I, I don't know the actual statistics. Um, I know that there are PEZs in different states. Um, I actually practiced out in Texas where we had our own dedicated psychiatric emergency room. Um, it was on a different floor of our medical hospital um, where our main focus was just psychiatric emergencies. So they are out there. I would, I would guess that most of them, if they are, are found in more major, um, you know, urban cities is where you're going to find that. You're not going to really find it in the rural setting. Yeah, I think psych like emergency or crisis, like mental health services look really different in different parts of our country for a lot of different reasons. Um, they can vary from, you know, like a, a primary dedicated physical space that's a psychiatric emergency center, you know, down to things like urgent walk-in centers or urgent care or primary care offices or family medicine offices. I think the practice of emergency psychiatric medicine actually happens in quite a few different places. And whether you have a standalone building or not, I think people experience this everywhere. Thanks for that environmental context. All right. And then uh, last question for you both. How, over the course of your careers in emergency psychiatry, have you noticed the practice change um, either from a medical perspective or like associate legal perspective? And are there any specific things on the horizon that you see out there that are particularly exciting you? Emergency psychiatry has changed. And I think it, in my mind, it mirrors a lot of ways that medicine has changed. You know, the, the, the medicine of it is growing and changing. We have new medications and we're always, you know, trying and building and growing and developing. We have you know, new medications for people who are experiencing acute agitation. We have new, longer-acting antipsychotic medications that, uh, you know, last for more time and allow people sort of more ongoing stability in the community. In the same way that medicine has changed in terms of how our systems operate and our, you know, high levels of demand and capacity strain that's affected psychiatry as well and we experience you know what we call boarding or people waiting in the emergency room for you know an inpatient uh, room in the same way that people across medicine do i think that we see you know the challenges like we've all experienced with the it sort of feels impossible to not talk in recent years about the coronavirus pandemic and thinking about sort of how that level of stress and fatigue and has sort of both challenged uh, both the people who work in healthcare and of course our country as a whole. I think as we start to see more understanding and acceptance and appreciation for mental health, um, you know, sometimes we say that's just happening in young people, but I think it's actually happening across our society as a whole. I think we'll sort of further emphasize like our need for investment and, you know, access to things like mental health services in a sort of urgent way and of course a non-emergent way um and i think you know that's one of the things that both is daunting to me about the horizon the sort of knowing how much need our country has but then also the thing that excites me as i think about sort of the when i hear people talking with experience and with expertise and with fluency around mental health that's exciting to me and i think that that a level of acceptance is something that we should push into, that we should lean into, that should actually promote us doing things like training more people in mental health so that we're actually able to meet that need in the future. And that's that's exciting. Yeah, I, mean, I agree with James. You know, I feel like sometimes it's a double-edged sword in the sense of more acceptance of mental health. Um, by proxy, then, that also means more people are seeking out care, and we're just unfortunately not able to meet that demand and so 
as James pointed out, hopefully, you know, more can be invested into increasing uh, emergency psychiatry evaluations, as well as outpatient level type level services that can help reduce um, the psychiatric emergencies if we can just get people connected. And one thing that I find, you know, favorable and kind of very exciting is that, you know, we're expanding the people who are being trained in mental health um, emergencies, you know, beyond just like kind of the physicians and medications, just having people out in the community who are recognizing people who are in crisis and getting them to the right services um, is very helpful um, to help all these people. Any last specific comments, things you really wanted to make sure you're able to deliver as a, as a learning point for our, our listeners? I just would say, you know, I, for the folks who are listening who don't work primarily in mental health, but are seeing this, I'm sure, all of the time in your day-to-day life, I always express appreciation. Like David was just alluding to, there's a huge amount of unmet need, and I know it's getting met by you. <laughs> and so I just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing. We appreciate you. We know that you're trying your best, and we're here to help however we can. Yeah, um, I completely agree with James on that. You know, as kind of I've also alluded to a few times um, in this talk is know your comfort level um, when you're coming across these people who are in crisis. You know, because y'all are the front line in helping these people out. We want you to be around. You know, we worry about our colleagues who are struggling. Um, so we are here for you as well. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for coming and sharing all your knowledge and helping out all of our our, our patients and our cases. And uh, this was really great. I enjoyed it. Devin, Candice, thank you so much for both doing this podcast, for the work that you do, and for having us today. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate being here. I won't lie. You know, I started off this podcast with a high level of anxiety and anxiety is slowly <laughs> dissipated um, as we progress. Good. <laughs> podcast is an anxiolytic. It's, it's coming. Mm-hmm. So that's what we call verbal de-escalation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. This is awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. We are always looking for feedback. And so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to email us at psychiatryexplored at gmail.com. Thank you, and have a great rest of your day. <laughs>